Thank you, Father. Father, I'm so aware that uh, you don't want powerful people. You want weak people through whom you can manifest your power. We have nothing, Father. Jesus said, without me, you can do diddly squat. And Father, I am so grateful that without you, I can do absolutely nothing. So just again, I just yield myself to you totally, Holy Spirit, that you may do through me this day what you choose. This is your agenda, your people, your time. I pray for clarity of speech. As we hear the approaching hoofbeats, Father of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, have Father bless this word to us, Father. Give us revelation of the glory of Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches right now. I was speaking to someone just before we started and uh, um, I feel it's very important and I feel a bit dogmatic and emphatic about this that we recognise that what we've moved into is a paradigm shift in the heavenlies. Those of you who were at the September um, residential school know there was a moment where I, I felt we had a Kairos moment where God broke in and things will never be the same again. What is happening right now is that there is a shift going on and it's like we have to jump quickly to, to, while the land mass is still there for us to land on the other side. Because there is a paradigm shift, we are coming in not to a new wave, not to a revival, not to any of the things that we've known before. We're coming in to a new era in God so you can't talk about it, read about it, hear CDs on it, because we don't know where we're going. When I was praying about this, um, about the new year the other morning, um, I felt a, a, a brick wall literally in front of my face as I asked God about the new year. Just stuck right there. So I said, I'm oh, sorry, Father, okay then, it's up to you, I'll just leave it. You know, I, I, if, I'll just leave it. And as I relaxed and let it go, it became just a thick fog, so that was fine. And I just let it go completely. Um, because though he's a God of planning, he's, in these days he shows you step by step. And then of course, because I'd let it go, he suddenly started, if I can use the term, downloading all the things he wanted to do in January. So when I come to hear June reeling them off there, that's just January. Um, Restoring the, he said, I want another conference in January. Oh, I'm thinking to myself, right, late, late January will be nice, but we've already got something last weekend, early, 5th of January. Oh, okay, yeah, it's lovely. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, there's the 26th, as she said, and then, of course, there's the residential school. That's got to go ahead as well. So there's January uh, for a start, as you've already heard. So that's the sort of speed God is moving at. The next battle meeting on the 1st of December, um, God has a sense of humour. I saw all of you sitting here with crackers in your hand, Christmas crackers. And he gave me the title, It's a Cracker. 
actually when we unpick it there's not going to be a cracker at all it's going to be quite some sober stuff calling the church to come out from among what the world does and be separate this is part of what he's doing right now we've been called to be separate but we haven't actually obeyed that call we've had one foot in the world and one foot on the things of the kingdom and the split is widening you get to choose which side you're going to come down on you get to choose every choice you make will either bring you into the world's thinking and the world's way or into the kingdom of God and to the things that he's doing so we are in a very serious time uh, so I've got no pressure to put on you I just my my job is to just say to you this is what is happening this is what I see in the spirit you make your choices you deal with it things are happening so fast okay so this morning I want to talk to you about the doctrine of war sounds a dry dusty old subject doesn't it I thought can I not ginger that up a bit but I couldn't uh, and the, it's scripture it is based on is Matthew she's coming at me again okay don't fret <laughs> I feel like my dog you know when he used to take him to the vets whenever June comes near me I think to me <laughs> start to tremble not that I've got a strong sense of self protection we'll talk about that later <laughs> Matthew 24, 6 and 7, uh, Jesus is saying, you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. And he's talking about the time when he comes again. So though the heading of this baton teaching is the doctrine of war, we'll actually be looking closely at the Beatitudes. Jesus said in Matthew 5:21, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, Whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And in Matthew 5:38 and 39, he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. So we can hear that and think, well, that's, that's good. That's a fine way of, you know, principle for living, lovely. And then it starts to hit, doesn't it? So we should look in depth at both of these scriptures and how they actually relate to the subject, the doctrine of war. Every time we study the Bible, we're lifting up the lordship, the majesty and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we study this whole subject, we will see emerging God's sovereignty and lordship over history and revel in his plans and his nature. His ways are revealed to us by principles which are unchanging. And as this study unfolds, I bless you with joy in him. Because whatever situation you are in right now, he is actually Lord of it. Because nothing can come at you except he allows it. If he's allowing it, he's allowing it for a purpose and for your ultimate um, redemption and good. It'll do good to you. Can't think of the word I want. It'll come. So these studies are actually to equip you in order that you might go out and speak that which is truth. That's why we've looked at the subjects we've looked at. And you might clearly understand the issues and what the will of God is. I aim to present these truths to you simply, expounding what the word of God has to say. 
I'm spending some time on an in-depth study in order that we may understand fully the issue. Was Jesus a pacifist? Should a Christian be a pacifist? Is God for war or against it? What does the Bible say? And what principles are at work here? I have to give all credit to Roger Price for what follows and I'm grateful for his historical research into the subject because this uh, session is based on his teaching. But as I began to unfold it, God began to download more stuff to me and Roger's teaching was like the framework. I found as I've gone on studying the word that I have to find out that it, for want of a better word, the historicity behind things to find the historic context in which they were set and what life was like then to understand because we have a tendency to stick our Greek mindset on the top of things uh, and twist it because the Bible was Hebrew, is Hebrew, Jesus is a Jew, was and is and is coming back as a Jew and if we look at it with a Greek mindset we're going to miss actually what he's saying because we don't understand the culture and the way that the Jewish people think. So we may all have an opinion about whether we should defend this country of ours or not, but we need to bow the knee to what the Word of God says about the subject. We cannot any longer put our heads in the sand about things which concern the society in which we live, and we desperately need to know what God has to say. This is why we've already looked at such contentious issues as homosexuality and morality, so that we may know what the Bible says and have an answer ready for those who ask us what we believe. We're not to be militant, but we are to be informed. We need to be able to say and tell them. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready with an answer, gently, when they ask you. So sometime next year we'll be having a look at the subject of capital punishment, the death penalty, which was abolished in this country about 50 years ago. As a so-called Christian country, should we have a death penalty? I'm not talking about public opinion. I'm talking about what the Bible has to say. And in due course, we will examine this issue as well. So today we're going to look at the doctrine of war. And after today, you will know where you stand or maybe just where the Bible stands. Uh, because you're not necessarily going to line up behind it. Because it's not an easy study. And we'll have to face the fact that we're not what we think we are as human beings. As we study the fall of man, we will look at whether what Jesus said in the Beatitudes indicated that he was a pacifist or not. And finally, very briefly, we'll look at the rules of warfare. I had to put the brakes on when I was doing this. I got to 19 pages of notes and thought, that's enough, they'll go rigid by the time I get to the end of this lot. I see the cockled expression coming over the faces. So part one is, peace in our time, is it possible? Everyone wants peace. We want it locally, we want it internationally, everyone wants peace. As I walked round the orchard near us the other day, I was thanking God for peace in our time. Our heart's desire for those of us who've gone through a world war is that it would not come on our children or our children's children. But how realistic is that desire? I shouldn't think there are many of you here that actually went through the war. I was three when it started. So I know what it's like to go through a world war, to not know whether my dad's going to come back, to see my mother weeping when he volunteered and wondering what's going on. I can remember sitting on the bed and she was, he was saying something to her and she was absolutely devastated. And It was, why did you do that? 
he didn't wait to be called up, he went in the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve because he'd been in the Navy before. And so he was straight in and Mum couldn't understand it, but he stood up to defend his country. So how realistic is the desire for peace? It's not war bound up in our own hearts. How often do we fall out with our nearest and dearest? How often is murder or war very close to our own hearts? I say this to God's glory and, and to my shame that one of the things that brought me to the Lord was that I nearly murdered my mother. I was within a, a hair of finishing her off because she'd taken an overdose and she was in my way for what I wanted to do. I was having to look after a disabled mother having got rid of a husband that I've been married to for 25 years. Not nice, is it? But what you see, and if you see anything you like, it is what God has done over the last 20 odd years with me when he turned my life around and, and took me from a, a, an alcoholic and a, and a near murderer to bring me to where I am now. That's redemption. So I know when I say murder is never very far from our own hearts. And it's no good looking at the ideal realities of what we must face. Bob Mumford calls it a gang of ugly facts. And we need to face them. As Christians, we should be, of all people, the most realistic about the world in which we live. In these days, God would have us face a few things, and he's given his Holy Spirit to reveal the truth to us. I feel that the Holy Spirit has prompted me to tell you a little that an anecdote was not an anecdote. It's something that happened a couple of days ago. I was seeing a young man um, with the problems that young men have, sexual problems. And he's skirting round this and using euphemisms for what it was his problem was. And in the end, I just came out with it. And he said, there's not many people who talk about things like that. I said, well, darling, it's no good us going round it. We're all made of the same stuff, aren't we? We've just got to say what it is we're actually up against. And then we can know what we need to do about it. At which point he relaxed completely and we soon got the business done. But isn't this the thing? We're using euphemisms and calling a spade an agricultural implement, as Derek Prince would say. I mean, this is it, isn't it? Call it what it is. Anybody would think that we didn't go to the bathroom, Derek Prince says that. You know. I mean, for goodness sake. But we can get a bit Christianised, can't we? You know, We don't face the real things. No, we're all full of love and full of grace. And <laughs> well, I have days when I'm not. That's Joyce. So, Matthew... <laughs> 24, 6 and 7, promised I wasn't going to rustle my pages, and here I go. <clears throat> Jesus speaking here. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. So he's highlighting something. The disciples are saying, what will be the sign of your coming and what will be the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus gives them a potted version of history between his first and second advent, which includes wars and rumours of wars. And then he says, see that you aren't troubled because these, these things actually have to happen. Nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And he's saying these are one of the things that will characterise the things between my first and second coming, warfare and suffering. 
He's saying all these things will increase as we get closer to my second coming. And he sounds pessimistic about the future. To set this in a historical context, Jesus was speaking at a time when the Roman Empire was reaching its height. In fact, within 150 years of this, what was known as the Pax Romana made it possible to walk all around the Mediterranean coast without a weapon. The Roman Empire had established peace by dealing with all its enemies. And it has been said that this was the most peaceful time the earth had ever experienced. So was Jesus wrong in what he said or was Rome wrong? Was Jesus a pessimist because he knew something they didn't know? Are all mankind's efforts at peace just efforts or is it possible that there can be world peace? We can look back now more than 2,000 years and say who was right. Forty years after he made these remarks, the Roman Empire invaded Israel and there was appalling destruction and carnage. We think that these things are recent, destruction and carnage, but the things that went on in Jesus' day were absolutely desperate. When we come to look uh, next time um, at the Feast of Hanukkah, which is the Festival of Lights, which the Jews celebrate in early December, um, the carnage that went on then was acts, the things that they did were unspeakable. So between four and five hundred years after he said this, the barbarians came down and caused the whole Roman Empire to fall and it was a terrible time. Jesus couldn't be optimistic about the future because he knew that wars and rumours of wars were actually going to characterise history until he came again. One of the things the Antichrist will promise when he's revealed his world peace at a price. Remember he comes on a horse with a bow in his hand, that's Revelation 6.2. And he has no arrow. This signifies that he will conquer without bloodshed. He will produce a political solution to the world's problems and everybody will jump up and down about that. And we'll see more of the significance of this when we study the book of Revelation next year. And just in case any of your hearts are beating faster, you will not be around to see these things. Um, the church will be caught out of it before that happens. Um, and I can show you why that is, and God's good. There have been 300 wars in Europe alone in the last 300 years, an average of one a year. Wars have characterised the last 2,000 years, and it's still going on. There's always a war going on somewhere and sometimes there are several at once. So the reason Jesus says what he does is that he knows what is in man. And I brought it right back to number one, didn't I, when I started. We have it in our own hearts. I know, murder is in my heart. Jesus knew that evil came from the inside, man's heart, not from the outside. Man, not nuclear weapon, is the danger. Man has got something within him that is causing the problem. So war is an inside job. James 4, 1 and 2 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And if you do ask, he says, you ask with the wrong motive. So what's the root cause of all this? James asks and answers his own question. Sinful desires to get what you haven't got at the moment. They come from within. 
Beloved, we blame the enemy for far too much for what actually arises from within our own hearts. He could rightly sue us half the time for defamation of character because it's us, you know. We are born with the leprosy called sin. It doesn't grow on us once we're born. We're born with it. It's in there. What's the cause of problems in a Christian group? Is it the devil? No, it is not. The basic problem for all Christian groups is that you have people who desire to do something, achieve something, get something, establish something that they haven't got at the moment, and because of that, jealousy, bitterness and division comes in. Those of you who've been at the Wednesday meetings will know that this is Eros, seeking to acquire, possess and control. I'm having a whole download about the difference between agape or agape, however you pronounce it, uh, and eros. I thought eros was just sexual love, but it isn't. It's what we're born with, a desire to satisfy ourselves. So our love has always got a hook in it. Even with God, our love has a hook. We come to God to get something out of him. And there is a shift going on. He is bringing us back to coming to him, to give to him, not to get from him. I was listening very carefully to the appeal that June made because it is so easy to put an eros hook when you're asking someone to join you in what God is wanting to do. It's just so easy and it's such a sensitive Thing that you need to do when you when you feel God wants to open up the ministry for others to partake we're partners with Graham Cook for instance um, and we bless him as often and as much as we can as God leads us to do um, but it's very sensitive how often have you been in church when you're actually hearing an appeal that is totally eros I need this and you're the ones I'm going to get it from in order that I can, you fill your own blanks in. And in a relationship, which we will look at, I think, in the new year when I've really got this square in my mind, of, I am now having to watch what I say. Because it is so easy to put out a hook for what you want when you're with someone to get that out of that person. And... Um, we talked about it when we did the school, about raping God is what Bob Mumford calls it. We come, um, we've had a move of God in the past and then we try to get it from him again. And we're virtually raping the Almighty. Come on, give us it, give us it. We've lost our position. It's ours to respond, not initiate. We've lost the fact that we are the beloved. It's got turned around. We have got a very eros-orientated church. But that's fine, that's what God is changing around and it's going to be brilliant, beloved, because our love is going to be without hooks. It's going to be self-giving, self-sacrificing love because he will do in us what he needs to do so that we can meet like this and not like that with a hook trying to get something out of each other all the time. Anyway, that's by the way, another message. So, we're actually seeking... To fill a legitimate need in an illegitimate way, it all comes down to that, the bottom line. Whatever it is we're after, our relationship or whatever, we have a legitimate need 
The trust has a legitimate need at the moment, but we ain't going to meet it illegitimately. Because God is our source of supply. So once we recognise what we're trying to do, we're, we're sort of halfway through to the coming through of it. God, I've got a legitimate need and I'm trying to fill it with something that isn't you. So that's what we've been learning on the Wednesday morning. We're at war with ourselves and with each other. Now you apply that on a universal scale, the whole earth, and we see where wars come from. It comes from us. Man is not an innocent bystander who finds himself taken up in circumstances he doesn't understand. He's the author of the circumstance. Fallen man is the root of the tr cause of the trouble. And let's remember that the first murder ever committed was Cain, who rose up against Abel, because he was jealous of what Abel had, which was God's approval. If you do right, will you not be approved? Stuff like he said. Do it now, way. Second generation and murder. So the fall is real. The Bible clearly tells us that the fall is real and evil proceeds from the heart of man. What we see outwardly is a manifestation of that which is going on on the inside. What I'm speaking about is what's known theologically as the doctrine of the universal or total depravity of man. Immorality, corruption, decadence, wickedness are the dictionary definition of depravity. Don't like that. Put another way, it's the fall. And it's real and it's extremely ugly. Right early on in my Christian walk, God seemed to show me that Adam and Eve were clothed with light. And ever since the fall, we have spent an enormous amount of time dollying up the outside to try to make up for what's gone on inside. Uh, because when I came to the Lord, one of the other things was that I was almost like a fashion model. So, uh, Jaeger, wardrobe full of Jaeger clothes, the whole piece, the bit. My lifestyle was not two cars in the garage, you know, and this sort of thing. It was not. It was the world. But it was all outward to create an image. We don't lose that when we come into Christianity. We move it over stick a cross around our neck and call ourselves Christians and we're still wanting to create an image to portray ourselves to other people as something that we find acceptable on the inside am I ringing any bells here? didn't know I was going here Just as a... so first you know we have to see these ugly facts because God is a, well, he's a minister of the interior he works in here and he's not ashamed to come in here and deal with the dirty bits in me. So it's no good me trying to doctor it up. <laughs> I've just got to open up and say, Father, I'm full of old men's, dead men's bones, wickedness and depravity and I've not, I stink. And I'm not going to live with it any longer. I want Jesus. At one of the, um, I'm off the point, one of the uh, Wednesdays, Joyce got some lovely big... Um, seeds out pumpkin didn't she we did not have Halloween we had pumpkin soup pumpkin soup and Haman's ears Haman's national whatever they call them but we had a Jewish girl stay with us and she said that you know in Esther Haman got hung on his own gallows gibbet and they have a thing when they do the feast of Purim called Haman's ears and they're like little triangular pastries I said I'd love to get my teeth in Haman's ears <laughs> 
Oh dear, lovely stuff. So the Bible clearly tells us the fall is real, that evil proceeds from the heart of man. And what we see outwardly is a manifestation of that which is going on inside. And that this is the doctrine of the universal or total depravity of man. You know, there a, was a move away from doctrine. When I first came into Christianity, I was in the Pentecostal church, and there's a move away from doctrine. Doctrine divides, was always what you heard. Doctrine divides. So we swung the other way now, and we've gone all into the charismatic movement, the renewal movement, and we've got... Oh, nearly swore. Got... No. <laughs> Sorry, Father, it didn't quite come out, did it? We have um, no, little or no doctrine, with a result that we don't know what we know about what. You know, if we're given ten minutes to speak on it, we don't know. And this is what God is putting right. So ask an atheist or a humanist where this evil comes from, and he'll have a problem, because his belief is that human nature is intrinsically good and if it's intrinsically good only good can come out of us so with more education and understanding we'll be alright without a belief in the Bible and in the fall of man he will be stumped to give you an answer he doesn't know where evil comes from it certainly doesn't come from him because after all he's not a bad chap all things considered the man that used to do my printing he used to say well uh, you know when I get there I'll tell him I've helped Beryl I've done all this printing for Oasis and you know he would not if ever I said about sin his eyes just you know don't go any further we need to settle it beloved every play, person on the face of the globe has to come to terms with this issue sooner or later is man fallen or is he not is man basically evil inside or is he not that's the issue. And the reason I'm banging on about this is it will affect your thinking on many, many subjects. For instance, discipline for children. Should they be punished at school or at home for bad behaviour or not? The issue here is the fallen nature. Are we going to allow it to run wild in our children or are we going to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Will we dare to discipline? Just an example to show you where I'm going. Those who think children shouldn't be disciplined will say they are like they are because of their parenting and it's been bad. Partly, yes, but majorly it's the fall or the total depravity of their nature that you're seeing. I just remember when my son was about two years old, he was just about high enough for one of these lovely high prams we used to have, you know, with a, and there was a kitty sitting in the garden of a friend's house and the little one was about nine months old, sitting there with his hands on the side of the... My son goes up and bites it. Out of the blue. I I'm busy, I used to retreat, I'll tell you. I thought, Stephen, he just thought there's a pair of fingers on, bite them. It was bad parenting, of course. He didn't have a chance. That's what it was. Two years old, and after all. So you'll hear the argument that we mustn't discipline them because it inhibits the little dears. It sure does. It's meant to. It stops them doing the things they want to do, destroying themselves and others in the process. How we've come to this pitiable state in our nation we'll examine next year when we look at the rise of anarchy and rebellion. Those of us who believe in the universal fall of man know that those children are fallen from the moment they are conceived, as we are all. Surely in sin did my mother conceive me, it says in Psalm 51.5. 
And the Bible says that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Proverbs 22.15 In other words, he doesn't know how to control himself. He has ungoverned desires in there. Discipline gives a child security. He knows you love him enough to stop him. It doesn't mean he won't fight you every inch of the way, because he will. Children need boundaries. And what we have to do, both as parents and if you're a teacher, it applies to you too, is to teach them how to control what is within them. We do them no favours if we don't. So this belief or not of the universal depravity of man will affect our thinking as far as law and order is concerned, as far as discipline as parents in schools is concerned, and it will affect our attitude towards disarmament, disarmament and our attitude to war, and even, I dare say, to capital punishment. Because if you don't believe that man is intrinsically bad and that what the Bible says about him is not true or we can bend it a bit, you'll come away from the canon of scripture. So the Bible is clear, man is fallen and terribly wicked. Psalm 14, 1-3, quoted by Paul in Romans 3, 10-18, says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. They've altogether become corrupt. There's none who does good. No, not one. And Romans 3, 10-18, As it is written, There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is un in their, under the lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. Why? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's another one I feel very strongly about. Um, the word says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as I'm always saying to people, it's not the shaking fear that he's going to punish you because Jesus took that punishment. It's not that sort of fear. I'd rather put it like that he is the chief executive of the biggest multi-million pound company you can think of. And when he's at home, he's your daddy. So you can run in to him any time, jump on his lap and roll around the floor with him. But if he's having a director's meeting and you're in there with him then, then you, you have to be respectful to him because of who he is. And you show that respect so that other people show that respect. That's the nearest thing as I can get to it. We're going to have a look at, if we get the time, at honour and respect this afternoon because the Bible's full of instructions regarding honour and something, again, that we lack so much in these days. It's just, since my childhood, it's gone just amazingly. Anyway. Bible doesn't mean sit. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's incurably sick. Who can know it? It means that the heart is a liar. It says one thing and does another and it's desperately wicked and you can't even know the thing. So it's the Lord who shows you your own heart. And when he does, repentance, which is having a change of mind and heart, is a joy. 
And repentance is a gift of God. The scripture says the goodness of God leads you to repentance, Romans 2, 4. You can't even repent unless God gives you the ability. He can't change your mind unless he says he gives you the ability to do it. And Romans 11, 33 to 36 says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counsellor or who has first given to him that it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. I'll give you a natural break there. Okay, so the goodness of God leads you to have another thought. I get a lot of people who say, oh well, the Lord knows my heart. My response to that is, he sure does. <laughs> Trouble is you don't, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and they are usually justifying some form of aberrant behaviour. <laughs> so if we're wrong about the fall, we're wrong about everything else. Paul based his whole doctrine. If you read the Pauline epistles, um, without the fall of man, he's got no doctrine left. The whole of Paul's writings are based on the reality of the fall. And beloved, without this, the message of Jesus would have been, well, you're basically not too bad. Just crank up enough righteousness to meet God and you'll be all right. He didn't say that. He went to the cross because of the fall to redeem us. So the fall is real, beloved. But the other thing I want to mention at this point is that sin is dealt with. I meet a lot of people these days that are so worried about the fact that they are habitually in something that they cannot get themselves out of and that worse than what they're in that they can't get out of. Let's say, for instance, it's masturbation or something like this. It's the word that young man was dancing around. Um, they are so riddled with guilt that I've got to break through that first to say sin is dealt with, dear. Let's deal with the root problem of why you're having to self-gratify. Let's deal with where your need is. That is an absolute example of a legitimate need being met in an illegitimate way. So if in the unlikely event that anyone has a problem in this area, come and see me later, I'll pray for you. I won't look at anybody because there's nothing to be ashamed of. God knows what we're made of, you know. Anyway, that's that's one of that's going off into the healing ministry now. <laughs> so yeah, he he is so kind. He's so kind. Anyway, back to the script. Uh, we just looked at Romans 3, 10 to 18, where he lays out the fall of man. And you'll note mainly quotes from the Old Testament because Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees and the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a very educated man, they gave the clock. And he says, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. None understands, and the way of peace they have not known. War is in their ways. War has come from within man. And Romans 5.12, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death, all have sinned. So it's from the inside that our problems and difficulties have come. War is an inside job. 
Unless we agree with this basic premise, we will come to the wrong conclusions and therefore a wrong solution to the problem. Look at our divorce rate. We can't even live together one to one, let alone millions with millions. And some years ago, I think they've died out a bit now, we had peace campaigners. They seemed to be everywhere. Uh, and they were characterised by a degree of violence. We want peace. And they'd be pushing and shoving the police all over the place. If they couldn't get what they wanted, they started hurling bricks as well as words towards those who didn't agree with them. So what chance is there of universal peace when we can't demonstrate peacefully for peace without going into violence? You look at it. I'm not condemning these people. They actually can't help it. It's just an illustration of what I'm talking about, fallen mankind. So what's the biblical definition of a peacemaker? Peacemakers are those who have the ability to bring a quieting influence into a situation. It is the result of conducting yourself in a peaceful manner. What is inside you comes out. Don't test me, Lord. A good test of whether or not we are peacemakers is when we walk into a situation and the sparks are flying and tempers are short, does the situation get better or worse when we arrive? Does our peace come from within us? Peace needs to be our umpire. Paul says in Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in our hearts. So we need to develop this type of peace in our lives so that we will be able to display his peace to others. And this kind of peace will be an influence to others in situations in which we find ourselves. So Jesus isn't being defeatist when he says there are wars and rumours of wars going to characterise this particular age. He's being absolutely true and biblically consistent and his view was based on what he knew of man, that man was actually fallen. Only when God is brought into the situation is there any possible possibility of peace on earth at all. And the Bible is full of God berating the false prophets who prophesy peace when there is no peace. Isaiah 48.22 says there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. In other words, you can do what you like, but without falling in with God's moral standards, it doesn't matter what you do, there will be no peace. You cannot ignore God and have peace. There is no unbeliever who is at peace. There is no peace for the wicked. You know that as a born-again believer. Your peace is your umpire to let you know whether or not you're doing the right thing in any particular circumstance. Never go against that inner witness. A person who is interested in peace is prepared to obey God's laws, to see God exalted and righteousness exalted, and is prepared to crown the Prince of Peace as their King. These are the true peacemakers who are blessed, it says in the Sermon on the Mount. Any nation that did this would have peace. However, it's a nonsense to suggest that a society that sets aside the existence of God himself and tolerates everything from rebellion to abortion to homosexuality and all the rest can expect peace within its gates. Again, as with sexuality, our last teaching, this is a moral issue. Morality is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. We have to face it we live in a totally immoral society. We live in the midst of a rebellious generation from which we are to come out and be separate. 
This does not mean living in a nunnery. Our separation is, as we saw last time, from something to something. We are separated from the world to God. From and to. And sometimes we just need to do, as Joyce May would say, a check up from the neck up, you know. I love that expression. Just to see how captive to our culture we have become. Ezekiel 13, verse 10 says, They have seduced my people. There's a seduction going on right now. And God gave me a word at the start of the last um, Baton meeting very strongly about the way we are being seduced as a church. We are seduced to take the way of the world in every single thing that we do because it actually appeals to the eros in our nature. And the agape, we do not. They have seduced my people. And 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, When they shall say peace and safety, sudden destruction shall come upon them. Paul is giving an example here in Thessalonians of false prophets. And there were many in the Old Testament prophesying peace and safety for Jerusalem when God was bringing judgment on them. And we'll look at this next year when we study the book of Revelation. So we must conclude that man is fallen and if he ignores God in that fallen state, only war and evil can come from it. So for the second part of this study, we need to look uh, at the four divine institutions. God set four divine institutions in place. Uh, free will. Every man has this, and not even God will override your free will. Marriage. This was designed by God to produce stability within a society. Family. Once you get married, you become a mother, a father, and a line of authority is established. That is very interesting. Uh, God is shoving me into a place of leadership. I say shoving because I don't like it. So therefore, I have to say things, make decisions, and draw lines where I'd really rather not. Um, but what he's saying to me is there is a line of authority and you are the line of authority for what you're doing and I want you to walk in it. I don't like it, but I'm doing it. I'm finding it not easier, but I'm not getting so uptight about doing it when I need to. And what we'll see when we do anarchy and rebellion is that a line of authority is something that neither the church nor the world out there will recognise. Because we don't like being told what to do. And national government is the last one. Oh, we're not going to like this. This was instituted by God to control evil in society. That's what it's there for. So these are the four divine institutions that God put on the earth at the very beginning to produce a stable society within the nations. Free will, marriage, family, national government. God doesn't sidetrack the issue of man's evil fallen nature. The first three institutions were given before the flood, but the fourth one was after the flood. If ever you look at a society and there is an attack on any of these, you know there is an attack on your freedom. We don't have to look far, do we? Marriages breaking up, sitcoms making fun of men, families splitting up, children disobedient to parents, people laughing at government, all indicators 
of God's divine prescription for the human race being held up to ridicule and destroyed. We must not be of those who do this. As Christians, we need to know what God has put in place and how far we as a nation have strayed from his divine intention. One of the things I want you to see today is how essential it is that we don't have one third of a Bible, just the New Testament. Everything you see outworked and fulfilled in the New Testament has its roots in the Old. Jesus in the New Testament, or the New Covenant, covenant is the fulfilment of the Old Testament. If you don't understand the Old Testament, you will never understand the New. The Bible must be read in its entirety, not just picked at. And as I've already referred to, its Jewishness must be understood fully if we are to correctly interpret it. If the Lord will, we'll have a look at the typology of Jesus in the Old Testament through the tabernacle and maybe covenants. These are foundational and so important to our understanding of the way that God does things and how he desires that we do things so that we might be, as I say, healthy, wealthy and wise. National government. First, we'll have a look where national government began. Free will, as I said, and marriage and the family are obvious. They began before the flood. Uh, it's after Noah's flood that we get the fourth divine institution of national government set up. And we'll see this again when we look at capital punishment. In Genesis 9, 5 and 6, we see the very beginning of national government. And here, God is dealing with evil and how he wants evil dealt with by us who live on the earth. And he says this, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require of it, and from the hand of every man. Do we not put animals to death now, still, if they've killed someone? We do it, don't we? If a dog savages a child, it's put down. So we're in line there with what God says here. Even from the beast he will require it. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. That's the New King James Version. But it's the latter part of verse 6 I want. By man shall his blood be shed, because he is made in the image of God. Actually, here is your answer to the issue of capital punishment. This is God's requirement, but there's more to it, as we'll see another time. What God is saying here is unlike before the flood when it was God and God alone who dealt with evildoers, now he is delegating that authority to man. Men were to be appointed to deal with evil in society. Men are now going to carry out capital punishment. That does not mean that individual men are to do it. It's not a lynch mob. It means a plurality of men to carry out delegated responsibility. It isn't a license for man to take the law into his own hands. This is people in positions of authority. These are people delegated by God who will judge a man for his sin and carry out the sentence. Clearly then, God has instituted government and that's what is meant by national government. So a king, a prince, a prime minister, a member of the police force, a magistrate or a judge, the authorities over us are God's ministers in society. It's not saying they're born again or anything like that, but they are God's ministers within the society. 
So don't, let's be heard murmuring. Let's be heard praying for them. And the New Testament passage for this is Romans 13, 1 to 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger, to execute wrath upon him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Wouldn't like that would be about paying taxes. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Don't try to tax dodge. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honour to whom honour. And as I said, we'll have a look at the whole issue of honour this afternoon. Powers therefore are ordained of God. And 1 Timothy 2.1 says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul is saying, pray so that we might have peace. The primary aim of national government, as instituted by God, therefore, is to deal with evil within the society. It is a way in which mankind can judge and deal with its own evil. National government has been given to restrain evil. If you ask most people what the purpose of the government was, they would say it's economical or social. But that was not God's original intent. These are important, but first it has to deal with evil within the society. Law and order comes first. If you don't have these, there won't be a good economy or society. There'll be a breakdown in society and therefore there'll be no money. So national government's primary purpose is to deal with evil and to restrain it. To judge evil and restrain it. That's what verse 4 says and that's what Genesis 9 says and that's what we have to get clear in our own minds that government is firstly there to restrain mankind's evil. That's why until Jesus comes men are put in a place of authority in which they can deal with evil. Psalm 82.1 says God stands in the congregation of the mighty he judges among the gods. That's caused a lot of people to trip up that one. If you ever hear anyone saying this means that we are gods, that's one of the lies of the enemy, isn't it? Straight, straight from the garden you will be as gods. Disabuse them, will you? It's the gods with small g and it always refers to kings, rulers or judges. So God is saying here, I stand in the midst of your judges, judging their judgments. This is quoted in the Gospels, I have called you gods. 
He says it's obvious. He's judging them. Their authority is of him, so a judge should be putting forward God's judgment in the situation. They used to, but it's not so in these days, as we move further and further away from being a Christian country. This is one of the reasons why we should honour the Queen. Whatever we feel about her, we should honour her, because she's a god with a small g. She's a ruler, an authority, because God has put her there. Same with the Prime Minister. We should honour him, because of who's put him there in that authority over us. So what he's saying in Psalm 82 is, right now you have judged perverted judgments and I am going to judge you. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, we will repay. So don't take the law into your own hands. And some scriptures for that are Romans 12.19, Leviticus 19.18 and Deuteronomy 32.35. Everything that we see in the New Testament roots in the Old so people in authority are his representatives as far as our society is concerned. So there's two aspects of evil that affect a society. There are inner and outer evil, and these are two areas where evil has to be restrained, inner and outer. So this is the duty of national government. Unless these two areas are restrained, people within the land will lose their freedom. First of all, there's the inner evil, not evil within your heart, but the evil within the society. That is those who are committing crimes all over the place, and the government must deal with these. Murder must be dealt with, muggings must be dealt with, crime must be dealt with. Through the police, the magistrates and the judges, the government should deal with the evil in society so that you have some semblance of peace and order. Notice the line of authority. There has to be a chain of command and it's set there by God. And no one, as I said earlier, is to take the law into their own hands. We'll have a look in a minute at where Peter took the law into his own hands. If these appointed people are there, they have to be used. That is why they are there. And the second source of evil that has to be dealt with is outer evil. By that I mean threats from other nations and nations who, if given the, the chance would take away the freedom and the rights of the individual. It's the government's responsibility given by God to resist outer evil as well. This is not done through the police, they are for inner evil. You restrain outer evil through the armed forces. So the army, the navy and the air force are there as servants of the government to protect our freedom. Armed forces are legitimate as far as the word of God is concerned. So the armed forces are there to restrain evil. They were there during the Second World War to stop us being invaded by Germany and put under its authority, and a very good job they made of it too. We wouldn't be sitting here in freedom today if they hadn't won the war. Because so few of you now actually remember the war, you wouldn't be aware of the fact that there was a threat to our freedom. If we had been under the control of Germany right now, our lives would have looked very different. So what I think we're building is a case for war, for going to protect your country. So let's have a look at an Old Testament example of outer evil being dealt with. Uh, and in Genesis 14, 11 and 12, we see dear old Lot, who was dwelling at this time in Sodom, just about as near as he could get to naughtiness, but not quite in it, carried off by a king called Chedorlaomer. This gets Abraham's wild up, and in verse 14 we see the first ever army. 
When Abraham heard, or Abraham, heard that his relative had been taken captive, he armed the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Note that Abraham's men were already trained. They didn't go out not knowing what they were doing. And in verse 17, we see Abraham, having got all the goods and people back, meeting with Melchizedek, king of Salem. And what's his response to this erstwhile warmonger? Not what do you think you've been doing, but blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So we see who did it. God himself, with Abraham on the ground as it were. God actually identifies himself with the army of Abraham. It's exactly the same as he does now with us and his church. He moves through us in exactly the same way as Satan moves through the unbeliever. Hopefully Satan doesn't have too much room to manoeuvre with believers, but sometimes he does. God is saying Abraham was perfectly right to go and rescue his family member Lot. And they got everything back, didn't they? So with the arrival of the institution of national government, you have the arrival of armed forces. It would be lovely if we didn't have to be armed for war. But in the situation in which we find ourselves, we have to make a decision between the lesser of two evils. All war is horrible. It's terrible. But you have to take into account the morality of the people who are threatening you. Abraham was actually, or Abraham was actually acting here as a peacemaker. Because these people were evil and cruel who took off Lot and they would have wiped out the nations around him but for Abraham's action. Archaeological records of the Canaanites show just how evil and fierce and cruel they were. So the number of deaths and the amount of suffering was less than it would have been if Abraham hadn't gone against them and left Jer de Lyoma, did that well, in charge. So it was a lesser of two evils. It happens all the time right now, doesn't it? An, a, an army is sent in by the UN as a peacekeeping force. In order to preserve the freedom of generations to come, we need to uphold national government and the armed forces. The lesser of two evils, yeah, but the fall of man is real. Wherever there's been a weak nation, other nations have taken advantage of that nation. So to sum up then, we've seen that the primary function of the divine institution of national government is to restrain evil and to judge evil. Certain people are now appointed by God to restrain evil done by man. Inner evil is dealt with by national government at the level of police, magistrates and judges. And outer evil, which is fallen nations threatening the national entity, is dealt with by the armed forces. We live with a philosophy which says there are no absolute truths. Beloved, as Christians, we cannot afford to go along with this out of ignorance. The word of God is absolute truth and we need to come back to it. For us, it's the plumb line against which everything else must be measured. God's word completely covers every issue that besets mankind 
we can be a loud, clear trumpet warning the people of this earth as we study to make ourselves approved. Workmen rightly dividing the word of truth. But we must ensure that we divide it rightly.